Hey everybody, how you doing? It's Mr. Manger. So today we have a very special episode. Mr. Jeffersonian will be joining me and we're going to be talking about corporate landlords in the housing market, uh, which is a growing issue and a growing concern. He's on the other line, so let's cut right to it. All right, we have Mr. Jeffersonian, Mr. Jeffersonian. This is Mr. Manger. How are you? Mr. Menger, I am well. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you? I'm great. That's good. That's better than the alternative, right? Exactly. That's a exactly. good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. All right. So, um, again, thank you for having me on. I think you had reached out to me. It seems like we're going to be talking about some issues that we have with corporations. Is that correct? It is. Yes. Well, that's good. I'm uh, always primed up for a good conversation on that topic. So you just let me know where we're going. Absolutely. Well, um, I had listened to your episode, episode 95, I believe it is called um, The Great Reset on your podcast, The Jeffersonian Tradition. And it's I got to say, it's a lot different than a lot of these other takes that are um, on the course trying to explain what this great reset is. And, you know, it's it's fascinating. It made me think and it um, prompted me to reach out to you. Well, and I definitely appreciate the shout out. So, yeah, anybody who's listening, if you guys want to check out my show, that's the Jeffersonian Tradition. Excuse me, as Mr. Manger said, that is going to be episode number 95, titled The Great Reset. And so with that, um, yeah, you're right. At least if our point of reference is comparing it to other libertarian takes, or actually I should say libertarian takes. So I've heard a lot of libertarians, they, they really think that it's going to be primarily driven by the government, in some cases maybe exclusively by the government. That's not really the way that I approach it. So do you, do you want me to go ahead and talk about my approach to that, or do you, do you want to go to some other topics first and kind of get a cursory look? What are we going to do? I, I think I can go ahead and preface this by saying, yeah, there's, there's a lot of focus on uh, what the government is going to end up doing. So like what the private entities involved, these um, multinational corporate entities have in mind. And of course, that means they could cross borders and, you know, exercise that kind of power that governments really don't have unless they either have, you know, some kind of um, treaty or worse yet, you know, invade another country or something like that. But I mean, that's typically not in the plans, I mean, so you do see like Michael Rechtenwald or um, Bob Murphy say, you know, you have these big guns in the private industry. Um, they're, you know, making nice with a lot of governments out there and um, crony capitalism at work. And, you know, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, now, what fascinated me on your take, however, is the corporations seem very central in coursing this all out and determining the direction things are going. In a lot of ways, I think that they are either doing it on their own or with certain license, let's say, with the state. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that that's primarily where my take differs from a lot of libertarians. Um, I, I really the government will have some role to play. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it won't. Um, as I mentioned in my episode, I think that's mostly going to come from trying either to collapse the currency or to transition us to a digital currency that they control. Now, where I think the big split is, is as far as the executive portion of this, so actually carrying it out and what's going to impact us day to day more than anything else. Obviously, the money is going to be a big factor if we end up getting to that point. But on a day to day basis, the government, I think they're smart enough to say, hey, you know, why should we fight for all this stuff? Why, why should we try to force people to do a lot of this when we can let the corporations do it and people will do it voluntarily? So what I mean by that is if you think about, let's say cars, right? So the big thing right now is they want to get the 5G network out. And the big thing is, is smart cars are supposed to be the wave of the future. So what happens when you get a smart car that's subject to all these OTA updates? Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, OTA means over the air. So you get all these updates that either make the car run or control certain features of the car that you paid for when you bought it. What happens when that becomes the norm and they put that on a subscription? Unless people think that we're, you know, putting our tenfold hats on here, BMW is already coming out and kind of paving the way for this. They have tried in the past to charge a subscription for Apple CarPlay. That is a feature that Apple makes completely free for BMW to use, and it does not cost BMW anything for the end user to use it. So BMW wanted to charge $80 a year for that. Now, thankfully, they're customer base had enough backlash that they said, we're, we're not going to put up with this and BMW kind of backed down from that. But they didn't ultimately, they, they didn't really retract. I, I mean, they took that particular subscription away, but now the latest thing is starting in the future, maybe within the next two or three years, they want to start charging you for heated seats. Again, this is a one-time cost for the company, right? They install the part, that's it. They're done with it. But no, because they can control the software that allows that thing to turn on and off, they want to charge you for that in perpetuity. So they, they want the car to really to be kind of a lifelong moneymaker for as long as it's operable. And, you know, a lot of libertarians may not have an issue with that because they, they'll just point to the contract and say, well, look, you agreed to this when you bought it. I, on the other hand, think that's very insidious because it takes away your ability to own that car. You know, those features, they seem kind of neat and all, you know, Apple uh, playing and then, you know, the heated seats. And I've also noticed um, OnStar service has something like that, too, in a lot of the, these uh, newer vehicles. Now, I think what you seem to worry about based on that podcast episode that I pointed out, um, The Great Reset, is, you know, what if this boils down to some more basic elements of you know, operating a car, like, my gosh, I mean, something as basic as turning it on, right? So yeah. do, do you feel like that is a realistic concern? I do, because they, they always start with small things, right? We, we have the situation where things go slowly at first, and then bam, it happens all at once. So I really do think we could see a day where to even start the car gets put on a subscription uh, versus right now, you know, you make your payments to the bank. And if you Welsh on your loan payments or your repayments, then yes, the bank can, has every right to come and seize their property because they're technically the title holder. But with, with the car industry kind of going the way that it looks like it might be trying to go, 
five, ten years from now, I, right now it's it's going to be mostly first world problems, right? Because a lot of people may listen to this and they're like, "Oh, this guy's a kook." Like, "Oh, he, you know, he's worried because they want to charge for heated seats." But no, seriously, let's stop and think. Five to ten years from now, if they end up putting the starter on a subscription, or you must get mandatory updates to keep the car operational, and guess what? You have to pay for those updates. Then who owns that car? Do you own the car or are you just receiving a license to use it? We're already, and we already see that with, with computer software. You don't, I have a Mac, right? We're recording this. I'm speaking into a microphone that's connected to a Mac computer. I don't own the software on this computer. I own the physical machine, but I do not own the software. Same thing. If you're using a PC, you only license the software. You don't own it. So, that may be fine and dandy when you're talking about, you know, maybe a $1,000 computer or a $500 computer, whatever the case may be. But when we're talking about a Tesla five years from now, that's 120 grand. That's a completely different story. And then, you know, God forbid, but if we get to that point and you have software updates, let's say if a software update bricks that car, right? Because that happens with our personal handheld devices, that happens. Sometimes you may have a glitchy internet connection. Maybe the update doesn't install correctly and you have a, a device that ends up getting bricked. You cannot use it. You got to update it. Okay. Again, when you're talking 500 to $1,000, yes, that stings, but it's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But when it's a 60000 or $100,000 car, are people expected just to be permanent lessees? Yeah, I hear you. And I guess, you know, for me, at least, I don't really know how to solve this problem theoretically, but, you know, I guess that's where you come in. Um, yeah. So I also want to get into mainly the housing issue that really uh, piqued my interest. You know, if we're looking uh, to gain value uh, down the road as homeowners, I think we should really uh, start speaking out and sounding the alarm about companies like uh, Invitation Homes coming to our block and uh, saying, you know, hey, here's a nice teaser rate, you know, off the top. Um, however, we have in mind, um, you know, this lease that's going to come with all kinds of fees. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem very promising to me. It doesn't seem like that is the trade-off we really had in mind when we were out looking for homes and we we're dreaming about, you know, what it's like to, um, to put it together as an expression of uh, our individuality and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the issue with that is when, when you're dealing with a personal landlord, right, or an individual landlord, there are certain constraints that, that they are subject to. One, they can only ever get so big as, as far as number of properties they can own. Now, I've known some uh, individual landlords. They may own like 30 or 40 properties. Uh, in some cases, if you ever listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast, th th some of those guys own like over 100 properties, but they're still subject to certain limitations, right? They have a vested interest in maintaining that property because if the market ever tanks or if they ever want to get out, they want to try and sell it and get top dollar. They And, and they realistically, they can't just sit there and hold it forever, which a corporation can because the corporate entity itself, whenever it's chartered, it gets a, you know an indefinite lifespan or immortality. So when you have individual landlords, when they pass away, their kids 
you know, it, they will probably split that property up in some way. So you're going to have a division of property there, kind of a realignment of wealth. That's an organic realignment. So I don't really have a problem with that. It's not like the government's going in there and doing it. But then so on and so forth. You know, as those kids inherit these properties, then who knows, two or three generations from now, they may not want the headache anymore and they'll let them go to somebody else. That, that's a perfectly healthy and natural feature of a, of a real market-based economy. But what's going on now, as you mentioned, with companies like Invitation Homes, they're coming in and they're buying these properties, in some cases, for as much as 20 maybe even 30% above the asking price. Especially as it pertains to young people, you cannot compete with that. It, not, not in our modern debt-based economy. Younger folks now, and I'm a young man myself, I'm only 29, but folks in my age bracket, and especially now those coming out of college, let's say maybe 18 up to about 23, th this is the most heavily indebted generation in American history. It, it, and I mean, it's really not even close. They're, they're coming out with thousands upon thousands of dollars in student loan debt. Um, with getting back to vehicles, you know, they got to have a way to get around unless they live in a big city where they have public transportation. But even then, they're spending an arm and a leg on public transit because very few of them will qualify to get it for free. And I say free loosely. You mentioned the uh, private debt going on, and it is shockingly comparable to the government debt, which is at 30 trillion. Private debt, when I looked into it, uh, it said 27 trillion. So trailing behind, not very far off, though. Another statistic I came across was that um, applies to two out of every three Americans. Our reliance on just getting by underwater, it's pretty frightening. This does not seem sustainable to me. And of course, I fear as much as anybody, you know, what if you know, one of these days, it just hits a rock. We didn't know what was there and kaboom. And I don't know, I, I don't want to have to build a Hooverville if you get my drift, right? Well, it is concerning because you're, you're absolutely right. Private indebtedness is, like I said, it's at an all-time high. But what, what's really concerning to me about that is it's one thing if something happens to you midlife, late life, and you end up having to take out a big loan, something like that, maybe an unexpected medical occurrence. But when you start off with that, when you start off in the in the chains of slavery that is debt, how do you get out? Because I, I can tell you, I used to work in a bank, right? And I worked in a bank for several years. I've seen people get caught up with a credit card that got away from them. I've seen people get caught up in a house or maybe even a card that they couldn't afford as far as the loan payments over time, maybe a job situation changed. And I've seen people who yeah. avoided that kind of debt, but maybe they got into a cycle of, of accruing NSF fees. It, it's a very vicious cycle. It's a hard cycle to break, especially like with NSF fees. If It's like if you overdraft once, then it, you're always going to be short. It, and depending on how many times you overdraft, let's say if you have five of those charges, most banks an overdraft fee is going to run you about $30. So if you have five of those, that's 150 bucks. Okay, well, now on your next paycheck, you're automatically you're paying the bank back $150, and then you're going to be $150 short. Well, yeah. based on what your monthly expenses are, I mean, you, you can very quickly see the problem with that. So Absolutely. And yes. it's, it's terrible because borrowers are really slaves to the lenders. But yes. when it comes to the corporations taking over housing, what bothers me the most about that is that housing was the last decentralized form of wealth and, and the most readily accessible form of wealth 
for the vast majority of people. And particularly what I mean by that is when you have a home, you have a roof over your head, you have a real tangible asset and you can get market appreciation. Now I think the housing market has kind of been artificially inflated since 08. That's my personal opinion. But at the end of the day, you at least have a stable asset, right? It's not often that houses are going to decline. Now, there may be times where they don't go up very much, but generally speaking, they don't really decline. But when you have a situation like right now where you do have insanely hot housing markets, you can build up a lot of equity very quickly, uh, very, very quickly. So my house, my wife and I bought this house back in November of 2015, $168,400. That was the sticker price. This home now is worth estimated about 400,000 and that's yeah. in a 7 year span. That are actually about 6 wow. and a half years as of right now. That that's insane. That that is it absolutely is. insane. So I think corporations play a big part in that, um especially here in our local area not on my street but in my neighborhood, it kind of like the broader neighborhood about two or three streets up. Invitation Homes has bought up about four or five houses up there. Uh, there's quite a few of them that are being sold by another company called Open Door. Oh, I mean, I, I was going to say, um, you know, basically this this both, whether it's artificial or what, but um, of home values, that makes it all the more alluring for some guy in a suit who um, comes to your doorstep and says, you know, hey, Mr. Jeffersonian, um, I've got $450,000 right here on this check. And wow, you'd be crazy not to, uh, you know, be my tenant. (laughs) So, I mean, who in the United States is really prepared for that moment? Very few. And it's sad because somebody in in my show's MeWe group has actually reached out to me after I released this episode and they, they told me that they have a parent who was in this situation and said parent never even thought twice about it. They were just like, yeah, give me the cash. And the the whole thought process is as long as I get my money and as long as my pensions are funded, because we, we got to, you know, this is a lot to unpack, but we'll, we'll get to that point. But as long as basically their outlook was as long as I get my cash and as long as my pension payments are made, then screw it. I don't care about anybody else. But Speaking of that, you know, when it when we talk about these corporate landlords, then the question inevitably has to be, well, who owns the corporations? And in many cases, their largest investors are institutional investors like pri- or I'm sorry, excuse me, not private pensions, but public pensions. Then you got big companies like BlackRock, you got Vanguard, Blackstone, you got these major major institutional investors all they see in a house is a chance for yield because we've been in such an ultra low yield environment for so long now. They see it as a way to get yield. And with invitation homes and companies of that ilk, what they do is they buy these properties with the intent to hold them forever. And that's, in my opinion, is really where the big problem comes in. Again, as we were talking about with individuals, at some point, they're going to let that property go. Whether they do it, whether their posterity does it, at some point, that property will be kind of realigned and redispersed organically. When you have these big vacuums like corporations, you know, acting as a vortex for all this property, they don't have an incentive to let it go. They have an incentive to use it as a cash flow cow. And then that kind of ties in with what you were saying at the start of the episode in terms of all the fees and everything else that they charge. One of the worst fees, in my opinion, that I've come across with these types of corporations is what's called a conveyance fee. 
That, that's where the corporation will put the utilities in the corporate name. They won't let the tenant do that. They, they won't let the tenant be a responsible adult and go set up the, the electricity and water in their own name. No, they put it in the corporate name, and then they charge the renter or the tenant a fee to forward that bill. And th- that fee can range anywhere from 10 up to about $20 per month. And, and again, that's every single month, plus whatever you're paying in your base rate, which is already being inflated by their interest. So it, it's a nasty system. It, it's, a, it's a third way. I, I mean, it's definitely, it's a third way. It's not outright nationalization, but it's a very, very nasty third way. Yeah, and I think what we're both concerned about is a lot of people in these conservative, libertarian, conservatarian circles um, don't quite um, connect the dots on that. From that book that we've been going over, um, Who Owns America? Now, Richard uh, Ransom, I'm sorry, he identifies three major distinctions that corporations have from natural persons. Uh, the first, which we've covered pretty good, is they're permanent, um, in, at least generally speaking. Secondly, uh, they have an impersonal responsibility. Um, and thirdly, um, I'll just read the whole quote here. Corporate management may in practice be entirely independent of its titular or actual ownership but as to the property of private persons, this is not ordinarily practicable for any considerable length of time. So of those particular three, I'd, I'd say it's point number one, that, that they're immortal. They get immortality at the stroke of a pen. As soon as they're chartered, that's it. They, they go on in perpetuity unless they officially dissolve. That very rarely happens. What what's usually ends up being the case is they're absorbed by another corporate entity so they're they're very rarely dissolved once they come into creation or once they come into being. Now, the third one, we can make an interesting crossover with that. There's a book out there by James Burnham called The Managerial Revolution. And that third point, it, it definitely has a lot of interesting side effects, I, I guess we could say, because what happens is with these corporations, you have a situation where the management becomes independent of the asset. And, and not so much with the housing market, but I'm going to use Sears as an example. Sears was spearheaded by a man named Eddie Lampert. And Eddie Lampert took over that company. I think it was in 2006 or 2007. And over the course of time, Lampert kind of discovered, hey, th- this is really a sinking ship. And then it seems, I cannot confirm this. I'm not saying for sure this is what he did, but it really seems like when he made that discovery, he started doing things to intentionally drive Sears in the ground. Now, some people will hear that and say, wow. well, why? If he was getting paid with stock options, why, why would he want to do that? Well, there, in my opinion, there was a very massive conflict of interest there because not only was he CEO of Sears, uh, he was also the he- top hedge fund manager of a hedge fund called ESL Investments. So ESL Investments built up this huge equity position in Sears, but they also built up a huge debt position in Sears. So they were the largest equity holder and they were the largest debt holder. For folks who aren't well-versed in financial matters, that that presents a huge conflict of interest because on one hand, they had an incentive to run the stock in the ground to send Sears to bankruptcy. On the other hand, you could say maybe they would have come off better had the stock price done better. But long story short, when Sears started going through bankruptcy, ESL, because it was the largest creditor, 
had first dibs on all the assets, had first dibs on all that real estate, all the intellectual property. Um, I don't know how closely you followed this, if at all, but Sears actually, I think it was in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 2018, Sears actually sold off the brand Craftsman, right? So Sears used to be synonymous oh, okay. with Craftsman. So who who benefited from that? And I can tell you Lampert's company made over a billion dollars on this while tens of thousands Jeez. of people lost their jobs. Yeah, well, you know, and even if you're looking at the contract argument, right, um, uh, when a company uh, you know, has this corporate charter, usually they are expected to operate, to turn a profit. That is the term of operation. So, I mean, if that's not what's actually going on in practice, that's already a problem. I mean, if you look at it legalistically and... I mean, your your insights coming from the banking and finance world for sure. That that adds another layer to our understanding here. Absolutely, and it's it, it, like I said, it, it's just it's a nasty system. When you get all these huge corporate entities, they don't have the same constraints, and that that's really what Ransom is saying here in points two and three. They're you know in point number two, their responsibility is impersonal, and he goes on to talk about how they you know, they don't really have a direct responsibility for the debt. So like Eddie Lampert, if his gambit had failed and Sears had gone under completely and he didn't benefit from it, he's still walking away from the debt that was ran up in the corporation's name and screw all the thousands of people who lost their jobs. And that's, that's just a very yeah. nasty byproduct. So this, this is where I'm also kind of split from libertarians. Um, I actually recently had a conversation about this with some libertarians and they, didn't even see that this was a problem, like that that Lampert was even able to do this. In the abstract, they did not see this as a problem. The way that one of them actually described it was, oh, well, you know, he took a gamble and he won. And I guess my position, uh, again, coming from that Jeffersonian perspective is, there are some things that it's not morally right to do. Even though it's legal, it's not moral. And I've gotten very angry about that because, you know, a lot of libertarians love to point the finger at government over and over again. But if you believe that politics is downstream from culture, if you don't hold your private executives to a better standard than that, you literally have no right to expect anything better from your public executives. Why should they care? And sometimes I feel like a lot of libertarians um, drift away from the legal system that they claim to even advocate for sometimes where, you know, you do have a conflict of interest. You do have, you know, maybe uh, some kind of contractual dispute, but what ends up happening is if you don't know those details and you're inclined to defend your understanding of free enterprise, you're just going to defend these uh, market actors and become an excuse machine for them. Yeah, and I would say this, um, as far as the sanctity of contracts, contract law is definitely important. I don't I don't think anybody's going to try to say that contract law is not important. But there should be some things, it's, it's kind of out of bounds to put into a contract. You know, like it, currently we don't let people sign themselves away into slavery. Yeah. You, you can't <laughs> do that. E- even with a contract, you can't do that. Now, as it stands, a lot of people, and I've I've seen this in a libertarian defense, a lot of people will even say, well, look, if you have a contractual ownership of your property, well, you can sell it to whoever you want. And that's kind of where, let's say, an open door comes in. Open door is in the market to take houses off the market very quickly, right? So they're, they're a corporation. They're a little bit different from Invitation Homes. They actually buy with the intent to sell. 
But but here's the thing: if you sell to Open Door, you based on their terms, and this this is just what's publicly available on their website. If you go look at this, th- this is what they will disclose without you seeing the official paperwork. But if you sell to them, automatically you're going to take a five percent ha- uh, haircut on what you think the market value of your home is. So let's say you know if it's four hundred thousand then you can sell it to them for 395000 or whatever 4% is. I'm sorry, yeah. I don't have a calculator. You're so uh, with, with that, you know, you're automatically taking a 5% haircut. Now, the libertarian position is, well, you know, people have a right to do that. Okay, but then when Open Door sells it, they are definitely going to take top market. I, I mean, they, they are going to, you know, they're going to take the next buyer for everything that they can get, which in the abstract... Not really anything wrong with that, but again, here in the real world, what happens if Open Door kind of becomes a gateway for buying these homes at a five percent discount and then turning around and shuffling them off to invitation homes? Who, who's going to oh, buy yeah. it with the intent to never sell it? <laughs> so there, there's a lot of nasty stuff there. I, I personally, I don't think corporate entities ought to be allowed to buy single family units. I, I really and truly don't. If they want to have Apartments, I, I mean, I guess I can make myself be okay with that. I would even then rather they not. But yeah. if they're hell-bent on being in the housing market, I would much rather that they have multi-family units like apartments, maybe even like quadplexes or duplexes or fourplexes. But I, I don't want them buying up these single-family properties and robbing people of the chance to build that generational wealth. Yeah. Well, I got to say, you know, before... We came into much contact. Um, I was pretty much inclined to put myself in the position of, you know, a business owner and robotically almost um, step into the foot of a, a person as those, this is an actual person, you know, as opposed to, you know, an eternal entity, as you might have described it there. I guess looking at it a lot deeper, that is the wrong way to look at it. Right. Well, because ultimately, and we, you know, we touched on this before, but we didn't really go into the weeds, but who owns a corporation? No, Nobody owns, even the institutional investors, they don't own it. Whatever influence they have, it's, it's going to be indirect through proxy votes. So that that's one big problem. And that that's where James Burnham's book, again, The Managerial Revolution is, is really, really eye-opening. Nobody owns it. All, all you have are these really highly technocratic managers they are sitting there and they are wielding the power of millions of investors' money uh, in terms of individuals and then probably billions, if not hundreds of billions, of institutional money. So the managers, they, they don't own the company. Ultimately, at some point, they're going to walk away from it. It's not theirs. They don't, you know, yes, they have an interest as far as their compensation is concerned, but ultimately they don't own it. They're not going to feel the same pain if it fails. They'll just be fired or be forced to resign and they'll go manage some other corporation. That, that's actually uh, uh, kind of using the Sears example again. Look at Eddie Lampert's track record. It, it wasn't all that great. I mean, he had some good success, I think, back in like the, the 90s, maybe the, the late 80s. But he had some good success back then. And then when he took over Sears, he, it, it's just kind of bouncing around. And same thing at JCPenney. I can't remember the, the guy's name. But JCPenney hired somebody that, that had a really terrible corporate track record. So it's it's interesting because, again, they don't have the same inducements as an individual owner does. Like if I start a sole proprietorship, I am pouring everything I have into that. I am taking a real market risk being a real entrepreneur versus these managers. Again, they just kind of they're plug and play. You, you move them from one position to another, from one company to another. 
they don't own it. So that that's another really big problem is even from a libertarian perspective, one of their big things about publicly owned services or goods, let, let's take highways, for example, you know, they love to say, well, look, the roads in my area are just super crappy. And the problem is no, nobody owns the roads. Every, everybody owns it. So nobody does. That's, that's kind of like one of their rallying cries. And it's the same exact thing with a corporation. Nobody actually owns that thing. What Once you let that cat out of the bag, that's it. Nobody owns it. So what I'm seeing is a tragedy, the commons issue, as we like to call it. Um, in this instance, you know, with the eternal aspect, you could say, well, that's also a time preference issue, you know, to speak the Austro-Libertarian language. And it's interesting, the, the overlap that you can bring to the table um, in the way you observe this and in the way you have uh, been immersed in the... Um, the agrarians and uh, the Jeffersonian wisdom that you bring to the table. And I think maybe that's all too rare. Well, and and I think part of the problem is, at least for libertarians, and, and I was guilty of this too, when, when I was still in my ANCAP phase, I, I was very guilty of this. You know, we're, we're guilty of reading Rothbard and saying, okay, that's libertarian gospel. Like we, whatever yeah. Rothbard says. Now, Rothbard had some instances in his book, The Progressive Era, he, he did critique these big businesses. He focused on the railroads, for example, you know, the railroads of the late 19th century. And he, he excoriated them, which was good, but ultimately he still didn't see a problem with the corporate form itself, which again is kind of where the Jeffersonians and the agrarians come in, for, at least for me. Yeah. They, they see a problem with the corporate form. They, they had a saying, you know, you probably came across it in Who Owns America?, they wanted to hit the root with the axe. And, and I love yeah. that saying because that, <laughs> that's true. It's kind of like killing a snake. You know, cut the head off. That way when you kill it, it stays dead. So that that's, in my opinion, that that's something that we all need to start reevaluating because ultimately corporations are also creatures of the state. And yeah. throughout all of the COVID pandemic, we saw over and over again, Joe Biden Joe Biden has been awful. He has been terrible. Nobody's going to say otherwise, right? I, I'll be the first to tell right. you he's been dreadful. But Joe Biden himself realized the government could not force the vaccination mandate, and he came out multiple times. I, I know of at least three or four times he came out and said, we are basically relying on corporations to be a quasi-branch of the executive branch. And That's amazing. It's horrible because a lot of them complied. At one point, before yes. before Biden openly started coming out and saying he wanted the corporations to act as the executive for that, you had, uh, I was reading a report, you had, I think it was like 7% of companies had, had instituted a, a, vaccine, a vaccination mandate. After Biden does that, that number shot up at its apex to about 35%. That, that is a huge jump. That means that one out of every three major employer was going to require it. That's just absolutely terrible. And, you know, we saw this when the Patriot Act was implemented. I remember reading A Nation of Sheep by Andrew Napolitano, and he's in there complaining about, you know, man, these these private entities, aren't they supposed to be on our side? But you know what? They're just playing along like lapdogs. And and then you see this, uh, you know, with the Edward Snowden story um, in which uh, – I believe it was Snowden himself who said that the um, the private corporations, so-called, were the crown jewels for 
uh, enforcing these the spying, this secrecy upon Americans. Yeah, because the the government wanted them to put in back doors. Uh, back around, I think it was like 2014 or 2015, there was actually a big deal about this with Apple. Um, at the time, Apple refused to bow to that, and, and they refused to build in a back door. I, I really don't know if that's still the case. Honestly, I, I kind of have my doubts about Tim Cook. He He's definitely not Steve Jobs when it comes to privacy concerns. But, you know, in 2014, 2015, Jobs had only, had only been gone for a couple of years at that point. So he, he I guess his shadow loomed large. And now you got, what was it, Best Buy? What Was it Best Buy? Was that like two years ago that Best Buy got in trouble for, uh, basically they would take computers in for repairs and then they would sell the information to the FBI. Oh, you know what? I honestly do not know. <laughs> yeah, let me let me look that up because that was actually kind of a sure. kind of a big thing. But that that's where we we have to stop thinking that private actors, you know, private, and I'm using air quotes yeah. for the audience. But uh, private actors they're they're not always these benevolent little angels, right? They they're. Uh, Sometimes they have very nefarious purposes, especially when they get that large. And the agrarians actually, and th this kind of blew my mind because I had never even thought about this, but the agrarians actually saw corporations as centralizing supermen. That, that's actually one of the terms that they used to describe them. And what they meant by that was you would have corporations kind of, again, be a vortex for all of this property. Now, back in their day, it was more of like asset or excuse me, revenue producing property. So, you know, you think about big factory machines, uh, things of that nature. Basically, the corporations would come in, outbid everybody, scoop up these machines that small producers would not be able to afford, and then just ruthlessly drive them out of, out of business. And then yeah. when there were no more So what you're saying is this is nothing new. Right. Yes, this has been going on. So for, for the audience, if, if you guys don't know, the agrarians were around back in the 30s, right? So they, they were around almost 90 years ago, or actually a little over 90 years ago. So yeah, this is definitely, it's not anything new. But what the agrarians basically said is once they used all this uh, economy of scale and all of this excess revenue and everything else to ruthlessly drive their competitors out of business... Then you start seeing sort of a quasi-monopoly or an oligopoly. And then what would happen from there is it was much, much easier to direct the economy because how easy is it to call the boards of, of directors of, let's say, 10 companies together versus 10 million individual store owners? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, I mean, while we still have a, a chance to chat a little bit, I'd like to go over this little bit by... Um, that Bob Murphy added in the Human Action Podcast. I think I sent you the quote. All right, let me just uh, take one of the bits of it. It's you, We've probably heard people talk about that there, there is this phenomenon now where a lot of the purchases now are not by in, you know families moving into the home, but they're by these institutional buyers, presumably for speculative reasons. And, you know, so I don't know if it's like BlackRock or somebody comes in, I guess Warren Buffett, people are saying Bill Gates is buying up a lot of farmland and things. And so, you know, just to do the, the quick economics of that, again, in this politically connected and the cronyism system, it's, it's not a true free market. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of the logic of it, that per se is not a bad thing that, you know, some some hedge fund or some institutional money manager wants to buy real estate and if they're, you know, temporarily put up the price, they're, they're doing it presumably because they think the price is going to be higher down the road. 
So if they're mm-hmm. correct, if they did buy low and sell high, they've actually helped you know smooth the, the the adjustment process. They pushed up prices when they're relatively low, so that they're actually not zooming up as much down the road. And if they're wrong, well then they lose money. So the the market has a built in you know mechanism. If they're buying and feeding a bubble, when the bubble bursts, then you know they're caught with their pants down. But th- but again, that all emphasizes or underscores the the necessity that the government and the Fed needs to just stand back and let mm-hmm. these buyers take losses. If you bail them out, so if they make money on the upside, if they're right in their speculative bets, and then if they if the if they get caught and there's a crash and you bail them all out because oh they're too big to fail, well then that kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, he, he does seem to get what some of the problem is here is you're compromising things that the market is supposed to take care of. And ironically enough, um, I think you would agree the corporate form itself is a big part of that. Yeah, it definitely is. So and so I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. I, I love Bob Murphy. I have a lot of respect for Bob Murphy. I, usually I, I really, really enjoy his commentary on all things economic. However, with this, I, I, I kind of had a different takeaway from you. So I think Bob here is saying it's not like I think he's acknowledging, yes, it's not a true free market. But if we would just do this, then it wouldn't really be a problem. Well, that that was kind of one of my earliest breaks from libertarianism is libertarians would say, well, look, this is how things should be versus understanding and recognizing how things are. And so when when you have a situation where there are certain corporations, they are not going to allow you, you know, in the aftermath of 2008, it was the big banks. Um, now it was basically everybody when, when all the helicopter money started going out, it was really anybody who wanted it. Like, here you go, have at it. So when you have that kind of situation, how do you get out from under it? You have to destroy it. I I mean, that, that's the only way is you have to take away general incorporation. Libertarians don't want to hear that. I, I talked with them all the time. The, the big thing that they point to is, well, look at our standard of living, all brought to you by private corporations, or you know, at least 90% of it brought to you by private corporations. And while that may have been true up until like the mid-2000s, I, I don't think monetary profits are the big motivating factor now for a lot of corporations. I mean, you have Google CEO coming out and saying, you know, we, we basically... Monetary profits aren't really our main concern. We we want data. Da- data is what we want. We want to make the world smarter by using data. Well, what does that mean? I mean, they they have access to all of your search history. They who knows what all they have access to. I thought this was really creepy. So I used to be a big big Android fan for for phones, and you know, I, there's still certain features within the Android operating system I think are are pretty cool that Apple doesn't have. But when I switched to Apple, one day I was just kind of randomly playing around and, and I did I was not looking for this. I want this to be stressed. I was not looking for this, had no idea this was a thing. But when I first switched back to the iPhone, there was this thing that I came across online talking about the um, the OK Google Voice Assistant. And they, it was talking about how they store everything that you ever say to it. There, there's no statute of limitations on how long that they keep it. You know, there's there's no built in duration for that. Now, I didn't believe it. I was like, no, that man, there's no way. Because, you know, at this point, I'd been using Android phones for like almost 10 years. So I went and looked, and sure enough, I, I found on my old Android phone, I just went in there to the settings, and I sure did. I found, I, I mean, I found stuff that was like seven years old. And yeah. that creeped wow. me out. 
I can understand. It should. Well, I mean, realistically, I can understand for analytics, if you want to keep that stuff for maybe like three to six months, I, I get that because people have different accents. You know, I have a Southern accent. Some people may have yeah. like a Canadian accent. Some people may have like a Minnesota accent. So, <laughs> you know, everybody talks differently. So for analytics, I understand that. You want to have some of that on hand so you can tweak it and make it better. But just the fact that you would sit there and hold that forever and that you can afford the storage to do that for however many millions yeah. of users you have, that's creepy. Because what else do they and, have that they're not, you know, telling us up front? Right. And, you know, my follow-up question to this is, how much do they honestly need to know, number one? And number two, you know, are they going to keep this private between you and the company? No, Or are they going to sell it off? Yeah. Right? Targeted ads. I, yeah. I, you already know the answer to that. So, oh yeah, of course. And, and you see, too. Right? Well, yeah, and so there, there's another issue that I have because I remember when when targeted ads really first became popular. That that was actually around the time I had really first started to discover libertarianism, and and I never really agreed with libertarians on this because I, I always felt it was kind of invasive. But I remember you know, asking those questions that every new libertarian asks, like, hey, what's the libertarian stance on targeted ads? The yeah. overwhelming response that I got was, oh, I think they're great because <laughs> I, now I'm actually seeing ads for things I want. But, uh, you know, again, at the same time, if, if your phone can listen to you, and, and Apple's bad about this too, that's not just an Android thing, but, you know, everybody's got that story about, I talked about this certain product one time, and then I open Amazon, and that boom, that's the first ad I get. Or I open Facebook, and boom, that's the first ad I get. That is creepy because you yeah. know we all say things that we don't intend for public audiences. It, I think every yes. single person has had a conversation like that. So oh, it's it's scary. It's like you know I could be saying something to my kid, and next thing I know, if I were to log on to Facebook, that's the first ad I see. Right. Mm. Exactly. And, and but then I guess my thing is that opens up the question of what else is your phone listening to? What, what else yes. is it here? So, you know, let, let, every parent has had this moment. Right. So let's say the kid's being bad and it's like, hey, you better settle down or I'm going to uh, beat your tail or something like that. That's a phrase <laughs> I heard a lot growing up. Uh, not that my parents ever really even carried through on it, but, you know, the, the threat was there. Right. So right. if you have something like that and your phone's just sitting there being a permanent recorder, if somebody hacks that or, you know, God forbid, but if Google identifies a, or, or even Apple, if either of them identify like a high priority subject or, or target, they could say, well, look, this, this person is uh, really saying some stuff we don't like and they're kind of building a movement. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and leak this data. And that, that is highly concerning. And, and I really do think we're going to see a point, especially for political races, I think we're going to see a point in the future where that becomes a feature. You're, you're yeah. gonna, I mean, right now you have a situation where it's mostly rape allegations that come out when somebody wants to run. But I, I think in the future it's going to be, oh, we just had this data leak from so-and-so's phone. Oh, my gosh, listen to what this person's saying when they didn't know they were being recorded. And it, you know, it could be a whole can of worms. Yes, right? yes, it could. It's a whole can of worms. Absolutely. So then, all of this probably now, uh, the audience is probably thinking, and you mentioned this at the start of the episode. Okay, so you've convinced me maybe this is a problem, but how do you get rid of it? And obviously, we always want to have some sort of a uh, solution, you know, on tap. And I think the agrarians, honestly. 
at least of everything I've read so far, I think the agrarians provided the most tenable path out of this if we're willing to do it. And kind of what they said was you would have to go back to restricting corporations for very, very limited purposes, no, no more general incorporation. And then you would need a citizenry that at least for the most part was somewhat food independent, right? So, so you would have a, a true agrarian attachment to the soil you would have uh, people growing their own food, at least as far as vegetables were concerned and things of that nature. And then as far as factories, if you had ones that were deemed too big to just simply break them apart and, and destroy them, then what you would do is you would turn control of it over to a community and maybe to a county or state, uh, a state individually, not state as in the state apparatus known as the USG. So, I think, you know, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow. I, there, there's times I go back and read the agrarians and I'm still like, Ugh, I, like, I, I don't know. Can we even trust that power at the state level? But yeah, sometimes I, I get, I have to confess, you know, um, some of the things you throw at me, I'm just like, Oh, I might have to sleep on that a little bit. Right. And you know, the, the whole question of the corporate form, it's almost like back to, well, who will uh, pick the cotton? You know, I'm, I'm being metaphorical here, but the kind of revolution that might demand if you go all the way with that line of thinking. Well, and people have a hard time imagining, right? You're right. People, people now, they, they really can't imagine because so many people now, they, they have no aspirations to really be a property owner or an entrepreneur. And and that's another problem. And again, uh, leaning on the agrarians, they called this out almost a hundred years ago that society was uprooting itself. And because of that, you, you had these areas that, that had been very strongly either conservative or very strongly pro freedom. They were just being ripped apart because the people were leaving. They, they were going to get these factory jobs and they were just following the factories. You know, if a factory went to Ohio and, and decided to operate there for five years, that's fine. But then if they uprooted and went on to Pennsylvania, well, hey, we're, we're just going to follow them. Wherever they go, we go. And that, I mean, that destroyed communities. And that was one thing that the agrarians really, really railed against was the destruction of culture. And, and it's sad because if you look now, you have people who don't even want to own a home. And I think for so many, it's because they don't, they don't really understand what they're giving up. It's going to be one of those things. You don't realize what you have until it's gone. And that that's where I, especially I have, I take issue with what's known as the digital nomad movement. We, we have a movement now in the libertarian world where some people say I'm going to get a work from home job, which I think is great. I actually, my last job, I, I worked from home, but I was still kind of rooted to my community. I, I wasn't just looking to uproot at, at the drop of a hat. But anyway, this digital nomad movement, as a point of contrast, they say, well, I'm going to get a work from home job. And then I'm simply I'm just going to migrate wherever I think is the freest at any given point. Well, we know that politics can change rather quickly. I mean, look how quickly the pandemic w uh, wound down once we had the Ukraine stuff to distract us. So. Things can change very quickly, and they can change very dramatically. So when you when you have a situation like that where it's like, I'm just going to move around, and if I go to Florida today and it's free, but two years from now, uh, DeSantis is out of there and it becomes unfree, well, you know, forget it. I'll just move over here to Texas, and then I'll just rinse and repeat. What what happens when you run out of places to run to? If nothing's worth fighting for, then, then I mean, what, what happens? And why do you care? I, I guess is, is my thing. That To me, that leads inevitably to nihilism. Whether or not they want to admit that, I think that's a very nihilistic outlook that 
you know, I'm only here for a few years and I'm just going to enjoy freedom wherever I can find it. Again, what, what does that do for the future? Yeah. And when that gets normalized, there's so much to consider with, you know, this, this uh, rental ship society, the housing 2.0. And I looked at the Morgan Stanley documents that were announcing this back in uh, 2011. And I just think, wow, from July to October, it's like they just said, wow, this is set in stone. We're, we're doing this. And said, you know, oh, we can get some help with uh, government intervention. But, you know, what through without it, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And, and that's another thing, again, that libertarians really need to understand. The, these corporations, even the good ones, they're, they're not really just sitting there as passive market actors. They, they are lobbying, right? They, they want to get their way. And mm-hmm. how, how do you, again, how do you get out from under that? There's, there's no way at this point in my mind, there's no way to get out from under that unless you start taking that ability away. Now, again, I, there are sometimes I still don't know if I want to go as far as what the agrarians push for, but yeah, the other stuff that they brought up, it's very true. People have to actually want to participate in ownership again. People have to want this. There has to be some sort of ambition, uh, not not you know not pure avarice or anything like that, but there has to be some sort of drive to say I want to do this. And there's a lot of things now that are incorporated where it's like, do we even really need this? And I'm going to use fast food as an example of that. Yeah. If you have fast food corporations that can proliferate, they can use profitable branches to subsidize unprofitable, excuse me, unprofitable branches. You have a situation where they can come in and really drive out the local competition. And I, you know, I, I hear about this over and over, especially in smaller towns well, we used to have a Main Street, but now we got a McDonald's and a Wendy's, and uh, you know, I, I hear maybe we're going to get a yeah. Sonic, and that that is so sad. That in Walmart, Walmart is is notorious for this. They move in and they kill all kinds of businesses, right? So where I grew up, and now I'm originally from Louisiana. I grew up in a very very small town in Northeast Louisiana, where I lived then. Believe this or not, we actually had a real-life movie rental company that lasted probably until about 2014. And yeah. I don't know exactly what killed it, but I can tell you Walmart, when they introduced Redbox, uh, or when they when they put a Redbox stand there, Walmart started getting a lot of that movie rental traffic. It, and it was only a matter of time, of time at that point. Now, who knows? You know, There were a lot of factors at play there. It was probably only a matter of time anyway. But I use that to, to kind of highlight the point because Walmart has such an outsized market effect. I mean, they can destroy a pharmacy. They can destroy, you know, rental places. They can destroy independent grocers. They, there's all kinds of things that Walmart can drive under. Toy stores, if you got a local toy store, yes. Walmart can destroy that. And so then for me, it's like, okay, how do you subject them to any sort of control? And, and that is where, again, even though sometimes I struggle with how far the agrarians want it to go. I understand why they're yeah. saying that, because if you're going to have an entity that's going to be that powerful, you have to control it some way. I, I mean, you cannot just let it sit there and eat up everything in the area. You have to subject it to some sort of control, be that through the shareholders or through the state, there must be some level of control. There or some method of control. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it seems kind of, 
like it gets boring in a after a while. You know, if I go to a completely different state, I still see the McDonald's there, the Walmart there, and you know whatever else. It's like you have to tell the libertarian types you're going to really abolish the Fed. We have to consider other options uh, unless you want to be gobbled up. I mean, for example, like a locality. I mean, they might have their own ideas as to how they might protect themselves from unmitigated corporate expansion, uh, gobbling up what might make their own town unique. Well, I have an example for that. And this is one I think is kind of a good synthesis between what the agrarian said versus what I find personally palatable. Uh, But I'm going to use hospitals as an example. So right now, corporations control for the majority of people, the vast majority of people, corporations control access to food, they control access to health care, and they control insurance. That is three really, really major industries. But let's, let's look at healthcare. I would like to see a system, and I, I did some episodes on this on my podcast fairly early on. I think they're back around like episode 40 or so. But I would like to see a system where doctors are basically truly independent owners and practitioners, right? Now, that can still take several different forms. We can say, well, they can own the practice, but do they necessarily want the headache of owning the real estate? And that, that's where, again, kind of synthesizing this with the agrarians, you could have a situation where you take everybody in a given zip code and say, hey, we're going to tax you, let's say, $1,000 a piece this year, and we're, we're going to put down a down payment to get a community hospital here. Now, when the state does that or when the community does that, zip code, whatever you want to call it, whenever they do that, okay, yes, they, the community at that point technically owns the real estate. That has legally speaking, that has absolutely zero to do with the actual medical practice. So then what you can do is introduce a cash for system service and, and DPC or, or direct primary care medicine is a really, really good example of this. You have a situation where the doctors can come in and introduce a cash for service system and they're they're not encumbered by the real estate concerns. They don't they don't have to worry about that aspect of it as far as building maintenance and everything else. They can basically just submit a bill to the community and say, these are the tools that we need, or these are the machines that we need, or we need this maintenance or that maintenance. And then, you know, by extension, all they're responsible for, you pay rent to the community. Now, that could take several different forms. You could allow the the state to basically sit there and act as a custodian and say, okay, we're going to basically maintain this trust fund, and we're going to reinvest it into the hospital whenever it's needed. Or the state, who knows, at some point, if it's successful enough, they could even say, okay, uh, for everybody in the zip code who's been forced to pay taxes for this, we're going to start paying a community dividend. That that would be a wonderful thing, even if it's a small dividend. I mean, my God, you could pay a penny per share. But that's something, right? That That is giving you like a real stake in your community. And that that's, I think, would be a wonderful model. Um, I, have you heard my the um, episode I did with Dr. Keith from the Oklahoma Surgery Center? I got to be honest, I don't know that I've heard that particular one. Well, so he and I talked about this a lot because that that's actually almost exactly how the Oklahoma Surgery Center operates. The The main difference is they have a separate company, a, a separate private company who owns the building. So he, which he's still involved in that. Like, so he, he actually has a say on, on both, on, excuse me, on both ends of it. Right. So on, on the real estate and on the medical practice side. But for a lot of doctors, especially ones that are just out of, fresh out of medical school, 
that would be a godsend for them. You you just charge yeah. them rent and and you know let them build their clientele up and build their practice up. And hey, I hope they're successful enough to go start their own little uh, DPC practice that that has their own building and everything else. But that's a community investment. Yeah. That's a real investment. And I got to say, you know, at this point, you know, when you see all these skyrocketing medical bills and such, you got to at least rethink the current system and, you know, consider all these other uh, potential models out there, at least start thinking in that direction. Well, and and that's one thing, too. So I'm not opposed to for-profit health care. I, I really am not. I know everything I just said, some people might take that and misconstrue it and say, oh, he just wants single payer. I don't. I don't. I think the only people who need to be involved on the medical practice side is the patient and the doctor. I don't want the state to have any part in that yeah. part of the equation. But yeah. at the same time, I do think it's pretty grotesque how a lot of hospitals are ran now, especially these huge corporate hospitals. They they operate the same way almost as a bank or almost as a car manufacturer. They have these arbitrary revenue goals, right, that they want to hit because they're, hey, guess what? They're top executives. They they want their bonuses. And it, are, are you kidding me? Are, are we really going to say that yeah. maybe they inflate the process <laughs> so they can reach their revenue goals and get their, you know, their target incentives? Uh, I do mm-hmm. declare. So <laughs> that that's what kills me is like, okay, it's not that pro- for-profit healthcare is a bad thing. It's really not. Again, DPC... That is for profit. Those doctors are actually insanely profitable, but because their margins are so high, that means their costs can be really low versus corporate hospitals. Their margins aren't always big. Now, sometimes they are depending on what kind of contract they can ring out of the insurance company, but their margins aren't always big. So sometimes even though they're charging you a really high sticker price, they may only be clearing like 2% for that. That, That's not a big margin. So that you have a lot of bureaucratic bloat in, in hospitals. I think even libertarians would agree with that because you have a lot of state-mandated re- stuff in the hospital system, but you also have a lot of corporate bloat. Uh, again, a lot of very high-earning administrative staffs. In a lot of cases, the administrators actually earn more than the doctors. So it, it's mm. a totally ass-backward system, and it, yeah. it punishes the people who need to use it, and, and it's not a good thing. And that's why... Even though I don't support it, I mean, can we at least stop for a second and just maybe ask why are people asking for relief via what they think, or at least what they think would be relief via single payer? Yeah, wow, that is that is an awful lot to think about. And, you know, and I, I think we covered a good amount of territory with um, with all that in mind. That is really an awful lot. And I think maybe uh, we ought to sleep on that much. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely, I think so. Uh, Again, it it all comes back to what the people are going to be willing to do to get out from under it. Uh, If we have, if we always have a society where most people don't really even think it's a problem, obviously we're not going to really accomplish anything in trying to disband it. But if we, if we have a turning point where people are like, wait a minute, you know, once upon a time I could own this revenue producing asset or once upon a time I could own this house or I could own this car and they get upset about it, then maybe, maybe we can start chipping away at it. But it, I don't know. We're we're pretty far down the Hamiltonian path now, and a lot of people, oh, are, yeah. I don't think, are going to be willing to give up the comfort. Yeah, I hear you. All right. And with that, I want to thank you for joining me. Absolutely, Mr. Minger, and thank you for having me on. All right, my friends, that is going to do it for today. 
I would like to go ahead and plug Mr. Jeffersonian's work. Go ahead and search for the Jeffersonian Tradition. It's a great podcast. And also, if you would continue to follow me on Substack and on all podcatchers available, as well as the MeWe group, that would be great. Let's keep in touch. Until next time.